Welcome to After Hour, a podcast where a journalist retains a lawyer to solve societal problems. Because sometimes knowing why isn't good enough. We need to know what we can do. Sometimes we need more than truth. We need hope. I'm Jane Steele, your host and investigative journalist here with Joseph, the managing partner of Sang & Associates. Thank you so much for coming on today, Joseph. Happy to be here. Today, I really want to dive into child abuse with you and child abuse that happens not only at the hands of parents, family members, strangers, but the abuse that children suffer at the hands of our broken system. I have a particular case in mind. It's United States versus Vargas Corden back in 2013, and it does involve child sexual abuse and rape. So I'll get right into it. Vargas Corden was a 37-year-old male Guatemalan citizen who was living in the United States at the time. In 2008, he was visiting his family back in Guatemala. And at that time, he actually began a sexual relationship with his then 15-year-old niece. He eventually did make arrangements with a smuggler to bring his niece back to the United States because he had gone back. And he paid $6,000 for her transport. She was actually caught by authorities on the California-Mexico border and transferred to an office of refugee resettlement in California. From there, she was relocated to a foster home in Virginia. But during this time, the niece remained in frequent telephone contact with Vargas Corden, and telephone records admitted in the trial reflected around 189 calls. So they were still constantly communicating. And as a result, Vargas Corden eventually drove from New Jersey, where he was living, to Virginia with a co-worker. His niece snuck out of her foster home and met with him, and they then took her back to New Jersey. After returning there, he had his niece stay with him in a home that they shared with several other people. And he and his niece shared a room and continued their sexual relationship. Vargas Corden also did not enroll her in school at this time, so she was just with him. He was doing a construction job in Brooklyn, and during that time, he brought her with him to the work site, and a co-worker started to catch on. He would hear things. They shared a bedroom at this place, too, and the co-worker eventually heard them discussing a potential pregnancy, which then lit off all the red flags for him, and he got in touch with the niece's foster care program who then contacted authorities. The Department of Homeland Security found her in a bedroom in the house in Brooklyn. And at the end of all of this, Vargas Corden was sentenced to 10 years in prison, followed by five years of supervised release for alien smuggling and harboring. The full charges were for transporting his niece from Guatemala to New York in interstate and foreign commerce with intent to commit both rape and third degree and endangering the welfare of a child. He also knowingly and intentionally transported an unlawful present alien within the U.S., concealing and harboring her. So from the outside, this is a really dark case, and it's hard to talk about because it's the abuse of a 15-year-old girl in a really wrong relationship. But it also looks like everything progressed as it should have, right? So she was apprehended at the border, and then she was sent to a foster care facility. Then when the co-worker caught on and contacted authorities, Department of Homeland Security stepped in right away. And eventually, Vargas Corden was convicted, 10 years plus five. But 
what frustrates me is that as clean as this case can look from the outside, this child was still abused. She still had to undergo all of this trauma and all of this abuse, even though from the outside, all of these systems did their job, seemingly. But if she's still abused, and if this abuse went on for some period of time, I want to argue, and I really don't feel like we should be satisfied with this level of quote-unquote success from our systems, right? Because this is clearly sexual abuse of a child. Never under any circumstances is that okay, or should it be just washed over because eventually there was a conviction. We do have laws in place, right? They exist on the federal level, the state level, local levels, and clearly they're being implemented, but they're not really saving children. They're helping them potentially stay in abusive situations for less time, but that's only a fraction of the children because in the United States, 3.6 million reports of child abuse are made every year. And that doesn't reflect 3.6 million children. It reflects probably closer to 6 million children. And every day we actually have four to five children in the United States who are killed as a result of child abuse or neglect. It's just so hard to look at this case and then look at these numbers and say, everything's fine. We have no issues because regardless of how well every department stepped in and did their jobs, the Department of Homeland Security or the foster system, we're still looking at millions of reports of child abuse. And that's only reported. Those are only the reports that we are getting. And there was actually a study by the Children's Advocacy Institute at University of San Diego School of Law that pointed this out. It really exposed this, that the laws intended to protect children from this sort of abuse, from neglect, aren't being properly enforced. So yes, we have these laws. We have the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, right? Which was passed in 74, reauthorized in 2010. Great. I don't want to bypass that because clearly in this particular case, the system did their job and she was taken out of a bad situation. She was rescued. But I also don't think we're doing nearly enough. And I also don't think we can look at what we have and look at these numbers and be satisfied. And so, Joseph, I just really want to bring this all to you and put it all on the table because you've helped children in cases where they've been abandoned and suffered neglect. Now they have all of this trauma and you've helped them find a home. You've helped them succeed in their academic career and go to college. What would you recommend for a system that I see as broken? Wow, Jane, that is such a big problem for society. I'm a new father. I have a three-month-old, as you know. And recently, reading news and seeing what's online, the world that I see has taken a different shape. News about the six-year-old boy sitting in the backseat of a car during road rage getting shot, or just this parent just giving up and letting all five kids die in the house. These stories take on a completely different meaning now. And I know this system is broken in so many ways, and it's horrific. Now, before I address your specific question on how we can save all of these children here, now, and in the future from being neglected and abused, I just want to address that. I know we're not supposed to just celebrate this case because there was a conviction in the end, but I just want to share my personal feeling about this particular case and about cases that I've handled. Every time 
I deal with children and I, I, I see our criminal system and immigration system, I'm always both amazed and appalled. Amazed because we have a system that's working, that is trying to work, and so many people are involved trying to make it better from the federal level to the state level, local level, all the court clerks, the social workers, so many people are giving their time, energy, and life to make our system better. It's amazing. The little that I know about other countries and their system, it's quite incredible what we have. And at the same time, I'm appalled because of the inefficiency of the brokenness that's at play. Yes, there's ultimately a conviction. Multiple agencies were at play, but it took too long. It took way too long. And, and somehow they were able to bypass the foster care system. Somehow they were able to live together for so long. And the crime of rape continued to happen every day. And this is just the one that's reported. What about all the children that's being harmed right now? Now, having represented children who've been abandoned by their parents, have been abused by their uncle, and finding guardians, and then helping them through high school and then going to college, and then getting them the counseling that they need, I have to say, once you suffer abuse, and once you're in a bad place, you sort of go from one broken system to another broken system. It, it is not perfect. And sadly, that's the world that we live in. And so when you're a policymaker at the highest level, if you're dealing with all these quote unquote bad parents who are neglecting their children and the children are suffering harm, but what are your options? Do you take the children away from the bad parents who have maybe one fault or two fault and then you put them in the foster care system? There's so many news out there about bad foster care parents, right? Or do you find a court appointed official, but that process is messy and slow as well and sometimes takes years. So really, as a, from a policy standpoint, it's very, very difficult to judge what is the exact right thing to do. And everything is case by case specific. And when you're looking at the judicial system, everything is reactionary. Something went wrong. Okay, now we need to punish and then do something about it, right? How do we remedy the situation? But it's not proactive. That might be the heart of the answer to your question. How do we help these children? How do we shorten the amount of abuse that they're receiving? How do we help kids who are in bad situations and maybe get it reported when it's nothing is being reported? Homeland Security is not necessarily going to step in. The foster care system, in your specific case, they didn't do anything about it because the, once a kid went away, okay, well, now I have a vacancy. The next kid, please, right? And so who is the right person to step in? Is it the cops? Is it the local sheriffs? Is it Homeland Security? Who? Definitely not the president. Yeah, I mean, immediately, I think, well, I want to help, right? What can I do? But then... The next thought is, well, but if every system's broken and they take a really long time, wouldn't my involvement just slow everything down more? And how much could I really do to impact a broken system? I'm just going to become another person in the midst of it that's with good intentions trying to help, but the end result might still be exactly the same. It's slow and inefficient and children are still being harmed. So, I'd, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. Well, when I say that the systems are broken, I don't mean they're completely broken. They're just it's it's not as efficient as Amazon Amazon Prime one day delivery, right? And and I think this generation we've grown accustomed to really good customer service. We we are accustomed to things being super efficient, right? Everything should have an app and it just should be well designed. But and then when we look at 
the foster care system, the adoption process at the courts, you see how slow and ineffective and, and, and loop, how many loopholes there are. And we're dissatisfied. I'm, I'm still amazed because there's so many good people making it work. And I think ultimately it comes down to that. These systems depend on people making it happen. The court clerks that are tirelessly making things happen and, 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 and getting cases processed. And, and those are the heroes. But again, it's still slow and inefficient. And maybe once AI takes off, things will be a little bit better. But let's not hold up hopes. But right now, what I think should be done is exactly what happened in that case. What was the catalyst that got everything moving? It was that coworker, right? It was that coworker that spotted the problem, that reported it, and it got things moving. Had that person not stepped in, things might not have done anything, right? You would continue to get away with a problem. And, and I suspect a lot of problems that we see in society is because people don't report the nine of good Samaritans. But should that be the case? Should we rely on bystanders and individuals seeing something and then saying something, right? Should this be like an airport situation? If you see something, say something, right? <laughs> That's never the best solution. It should be a backup solution, but it should not be the primary solution. And I think that's part of the problem. With a lot of these laws that are in place, they're put there to punish and it's reactive. And there's no state official knocking your door and checking on how you're parenting. And then if you're not doing it right, then they punish you. And realistically, we don't want to live in that society, of course. But I think that's the crux of it. Ultimately, if people are better parents, there will be less neglect and less abuse. If the children themselves know the law regarding neglect and abuse, they might be able to speak out. Let's not underestimate children. My nephew, who's 10-year-old, 12-year-old, they're super smart, right? <laughs> they, they know more than we might think. Mm -hmm. And I think empowering children and having better parents would mm -hmm. be the solution, at least the remedy, um, part of the remedy to solving this particular problem. Mm -hmm. But how do we do that? My suggestion <laughs> is let's help the teachers. First of all, I think teachers should be paid at least 50% more, if not 100% more, <laughs> right? They're not, they're tasked with not just teaching the kids and, and from all my teacher friends that I know, so much of their task and their emotional struggle is not dealing with the kids, but the parents. Yes. Right? Yes. So a lot of my friends have become teachers and become principals and become superintendents and, and it's dealing with the parents. That's so much of the heartache because you could do as much as you can in the classroom. But if there's some emotional trauma at home, if the parents are not helping, then the kid is not going to absorb as much as they can. And you're, you're, you're already maxed out with the number of children that you have. And on top of that, teachers have to learn CPR, teachers have to learn all these other things. They have to be counselors as well as, as, as being uh, educators. And now I'm tasking them with the additional thing of cr uh, criminal enforcement to check on how the parents are doing and if there's neglect, report it. But if there's something, some sort of training there, because who gets to see the parents most often in the agency that we have in the U.S.? It's not the social worker, right? Social workers don't usually visit your house if it's a normal parenting situation. Uh, it's not healthcare providers. Definitely not, it's not cops. People don't just randomly show up. The closest public servant that we have in this society to the children and to the parents 
It's the teachers. And the teachers, the counselors, the principals, they engage with the student, they engage with the parents, and they're tasked with not only educating the children to learn math, English, social studies, but also helping the parents be better parents in some way. And if there's some sort of opening, and if they see and spot certain problems, then maybe they can report it to an agency and then the agency can get off, get involved. At least it's a red flag for them to check up. Not necessarily any punishments yet because a lot of quote unquote neglect and abuse is just children being children and falsely reporting. But what if there's actual problems? And if it's flagged, if it's checked up on, maybe it could prevent something down the line, right? Now, I know this particular solution doesn't solve our specific case because the 15-year-old girl wasn't involved, enrolled in school and the coworker or the or other people saw that and was suspicious. But again, th there are sheriffs out there that's checking if the kids are legitimately going to school or not, right? So that's part of, I feel like, the overall solution. Helping parents be better. And then the second thing that I was talking about, helping children understand the laws. And yes, a foreigner from Guatemala might not be able to learn all of these things of U.S. law, they might not even be interested. But if children from a younger age understand these laws, so, you know, that's one of the pet projects that I have. I'm trying to write this children's book, converting all the useful laws that children should know about, like the idea of negligence. If somebody has a responsibility over you and then they don't do it and it causes you harm, well, that is not right. Or the idea of libel, right? Don't say, uh, write, print anything that is harmful to somebody else, especially if it's not true, mm. right? So when I hear your story and hear where you're coming from, feeling for these children who's been abused and neglected, it's a major problem in society. And ultimately, it comes to this philosophical question, how should we as a society, how should this commonwealth help parents be better parents and educate the young because they are the future of this country? Just having laws abstractly in place saying, if you do something wrong, we'll punish you is definitely not sufficient. And I think that's what you're getting at. It's not sufficient. What is necessary? But what are the alternatives, right? We don't want a police state where uh, we have the government knocking on our door every single day, watching us and asking us how we're parenting. But if there's a program at a federal level, state level, local level, and at local churches or, or other nonprofits that help people become better parents, teaching them what are they supposed to do, what are all the resources that's available. A lot of it is that, right? And educating them because these stories that I read online day in and day out, a lot of times people are just giving up. They're burnt out. They feel like they have to do it alone, right? The whole like American ethics of do it yourself. You don't need help because getting help is weak. Any th sort of a mentality like that, and then when you, when it's too much, you give up and take your own life or you, you, you give up on your children and then they suffer. It's a fine line between doing it yourself and committing negligence. Hmm. That's so interesting. And it reminds me of, of a similar campaign that's already in place to help children report sexual abuse is teaching them about their bodies. Because if they don't, know what's happened to them, they're not going to be able to communicate it to someone older. So I've heard of similar similar programs or I don't know if it's books really, but where there's an emphasis on teaching children about themselves so they can, even if they don't really understand, they at least have words and they have vocabulary that can point adults in the right direction. So that's what sounds really similar to your children's book mm -hmm. in regards to law of, you know, I have this funny feeling of what's going on at home, but 
if children aren't told that's look out for this and here's a word, they're just going to accept it as this is this is what it is and this is this is normal. But if you give them vocabulary and empower them at an age appropriate level, then they can start catching these things very early on. And even even with teachers in the school system, obviously mandatory reporting is a thing, but it doesn't feel, at least from what I've seen, that it happens all that often or that teachers really feel equipped to go through that process, that they're intimidated of, oh, well, you know, this is kind of weird, but I don't feel like I know enough or I'm scared of the repercussions if I report. So even though mandatory reporting is, is part of our law, and as part of their job, and they've signed that they will do this, they've committed to it, it doesn't always happen because of that insecurity and because of that lack of confidence of, I know what's going to happen when I take these steps, and I know why I'm doing it, it's to protect this child. And so I think it is the empowering the children and teaching them, and then the other side of that of empowering adults and the teachers to not only keep your eye out and know that you will have to report if you see something glaringly going wrong, but giving them the skills to navigate the more nuanced situations and to be able to point out and direct in those gray areas where something is going wrong and they have that funny feeling, Mm -hmm. but it's not clear as day. Right. And this goes back to our previous episode when I mentioned that cops supposed to do community service. Yes. If cops are empowering parents to be better parents, if cops are engaging with the children and playing with them and understanding them, and if it's not looked down upon, it's a shift in mentality between trying to do it yourself versus getting help. And if society looks upon teachers and cops and these nonprofit agencies that comes around and helps you and helps you as a family be a better family and everybody looks to them for resource, that should be a good thing. Right. And so I think if society makes that leap, makes that change, instead of focusing all the resources on the homeland security and on the sheriffs and the foster home, trying to expand their agency, trying to make them more efficient, trying to go and catch all the bad parents instead of like, right, cops catching bad guys, bad parents, change it so that it's we're helping parents be better parents, much more preventative and reforming as opposed to punishing and I'm sure other countries and other cultures focus more on that as well. If we can borrow some of that mentality, that will go a long way. Hmm. So interesting. It does infuse, I think, a, a sense of optimism into the conversation of that these are things that are already happening or we can borrow from other cultures or there's already this shift that we see culturally where this is becoming these sorts of conversations are becoming more OK to talk about. And we are just adding our tiny little bit or putting a slightly different spin on it to propel it forward. We're not working alone. Others aren't working alone. And I think that's been a big takeaway from most of our conversations is that this doesn't come down to a single person, a single agency, a single government, a single law. It comes down to the collective community, whether that be the family level, local, obviously it goes up. But I feel like that's a big takeaway from all of this is that it is a group, a true group effort. And the encouragement I find in that is that, as you said earlier, with the American spirit is that that's clearly something that we want. Yeah. And whoever whoever doesn't want that is clearly in a in a very small minority. But everybody wants to protect children. Everyone wants to work together and 
let's put our heads together and come up with the tools and creative ways to really take leaps in this. Whether it's saving children and rescuing them or any other large societal issue, it comes down to, yes, this is a societal issue and we will solve it together as a society. And just to bring news into this, right, we know President Biden is trying to provide better childcare mm. to the next generation, right? Because childcare is way too expensive. It's, it's almost like a college tuition for most families. So it's extreme. But, but if you don't have that, then in a way, that's almost negligence. Mm. If you are doing it yourself and yet you're working and the child is alone in the other room or in the backyard and there's a dog and there's a pool, right? So mm. Biden is seeing that our society needs childcare. And that's just the first step. What's the benefit of childcare? Helping the children and also helping the parents. But why don't we take it a step further? Why don't, as a society, help parents be better parents and, and guide them through the next 18 years? There's first-time parents and there's parents who have other children. You're being a stepdad or you have multiple children and each child is different and each stage of your life is different. Maybe you're going through a divorce and you're being a single mother of three. It's extremely, extremely difficult. There should be better programs and we can't just rely on nonprofits and the goodwill of friends and family because ideally none of this would happen. And maybe ideally there will be tons of nonprofits and friends and family that's come to your aid. But what if you don't? And what is that child just going to suffer? And are we as a society just going to let that happen? And I think if we have the laws in place, we're shooting for that ideal. I think the next ideal to shoot for is to really provide all of these agencies with additional resource, especially teachers, to give them that training and have everybody focus on help the parents be better parents and help the children be better children. And not just in the sense of don't be negligent, but also how do you be attentive? How do you listen correctly? How do you do CPR? All of these good things. The answer is always love more. Hmm. Love more. <laughs> well, Joseph, thank you so much for your time today, for engaging in this conversation. I'm always so grateful. I'm sure others are too. So <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to the next one. Yeah, happy to be here. Many thanks to Joseph for our conversation today. After Hours is a podcast by Sang & Associates, an international firm dedicated to solving legal problems with creative solutions. If you enjoyed today's episode of After Hour, you will find these conversations and more on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. For information on Sang & Associates, go to sangslaw.com. Feel free to connect with us on Instagram and Facebook, as well as to learn more about what we do and hear success stories from Sang & Associates. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thank you for joining me for After Hour. I'm Jane Steele.